Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What's up, Mets Up listeners? Back here for episode number 71 of the Mets Up podcast. Of course, I'm your co-host, Draftneck Mark. Mark Luino here with James Shiano. Jeter had no range. Talking about the New York Mets, and we actually do have some stuff to talk about again. I know, you're probably like, where's the Once Upon a Time in Queens episode? It's going to come when we literally have nothing. We actually have things to talk about here. Let us talk about current events. We got a new bench coach. Ooh, exciting. New bench coach. We got some international signings that went on um, as well. We got some updates with the lockout, and we also have a special guest this episode, Matt Eddy from Baseball America. He's one of their editors over there. He's actually going to come on for like the last 20 minutes, talk about the Mets prospects, talk about their farm system, and give you a little deeper dive than we normally are able to do. So of course, if you guys are enjoying what you're seeing here, make sure you support us by following us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube channel, Mets Up. You'll be able to find us there. If you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen, you'll be able to find us. Drop us a five-star rating. Drop us a review. Shout out to the few of you that we did see at the reviews the other day. So we do appreciate that. And we will address those questions if we have not yet done so. Um, and now it's a perfect time to bring in James. What's up there, James? How you doing? What's up, Mark? I'm good. Good day. I got a good episode plan. I'm kind of excited about this one. And also, don't undersell Matt Eddie. He's the executive editor of Baseball America. He is, he's one of the head honchos over there. So this was a pretty big pull for us. So I don't, I don't want you to talk about just some easily editor over here. No. He's, he's been there for 20 years. Yeah, that's that's a, an appropriate fix right there. We definitely need to get the title correct, executive editor. Yeah, and me and James technically recorded that part first before we did the intro. So we know what went on there. And I'm telling you guys, really, really good conversation. If you're into the prospect deep dives that we do, we get even deeper here with Matt Eddy. So make sure you stick around for the last 20 minutes. Right now, though, we want to talk about stuff that's currently going on in baseball. And I guess let's start off with the easiest thing, which is going to be the bench coach, because the Mets got a bench coach announced. And that's going to be Glenn Sherlock, which is a name that might be familiar to you Mets fans already, because he's been with the organization back with uh, Terry, right, in 2017, I think. Yeah, uh, Glenn Sherlock was a Mets bench coach for the 2017, 2018, and 2019 seasons. Three seasons I think most Mets fans would want to forget, but I'm not going to place any blame for any of that stuff on Glenn Sherlock because he at the time I think he was more first and third base a bench coach yeah he was I think third base for a bit then first base like he's basically just one of the good old boys it seems like which is kind of something that we wanted to get away from (laughs) and it seemed like all the reporting and all the news was that the Mets weren't going to be doing this for the bench coach thing not that it really matters but it seems like Buck Showalter hired just another one of his guys yeah he's definitely one of his guys I'm not going to say like this is thrilling news I thought that we were going to lean more towards a younger, sharper guy, but this is also, again, the bench coach, so no one should be losing sleep over this. This is also classic Mets to drop this news on Saturday night during the NFL playoffs while we were actually out for Mark's birthday. That was on Saturday, so this really went over our heads as much as it probably went over all of your guys' heads as well. But I don't even think Glenn Sherlock even needs the entirety of a full breakdown because he's been with the Mets before, but... <laughs> 
He was hired 2017 to work under Terry, like we said, first and third base bench coach. And he was very well liked. So it's not really like an issue here for anybody. But just like Wayne Kirby and Joey Cora, he has a very long standing relationship with Buck Showalter, which is something that he swore would not be something that factored into any of these decisions. It seems like it was prominent in most of them. Literally the only guy on the coaching staff that seems like Buck Showalter didn't have a fantastic personal relationship is Jeremy Hefner, who is by far the smartest guy in that entire coaching staff, without a doubt. And Chavez. And oh yeah, and Chavez, of course. Yeah, Eric Chavez. But I think Buck technically managed Chavez. Did he manage Chavez or have any sort of um No, because Chavez never had anything to do with the Orioles. And by the when she, when Buck was still in the major leagues, he was with the A's. So he probably okay. knew him for managing against him a lot when he was uh, when Chavez was an A and Buck was a Ranger. But this Glenn Sherlock and um Buck connection goes all the way back to nineteen ninety-five when we're he was born. on the Yankee staff. So Glenn Sherlock was on a coaching staff with Buck Showalter before either of us were even born. That's that's just to that's, put in perspective the strength of this relationship. Yeah, it's a little dated there. Um at the end of the day again, it's the bench coach like we say with all the positions. I hitting coach and pitching coach are the two most important outside of the actual manager. And even then, like their job is kind of ancillary to what actually happens on the field. Just make sure you know all the right stuff. Bench coach is there to keep everybody calm. He's even keel. He's make sure that Buck Showalter's on top of his game. He's like the coach for the coach, I feel like, at the end of the day. Definitely. And Glenn Sherlock's experience in baseball does go well beyond his relationship with Buck Showalter. I want to make that clear. Of course, after Buck went to Arizona, he took Glenn Sherlock with him in 1998. So we went step one, step two with him. But after Buck left the Diamondbacks after the 2000 season, I say left, he was fired. I'm being too negative about Buck. I'm sorry. (laughs) But Glenn Sherlock stuck on that Diamondback staff for 19 more years. Oh, my God. He was with them until he came to the Mets. Not 19 more, but 19 total from 98 all the way through 2017 when he came to the Mets. And then those 2017 Mets were very turbulent. He was with the Mets with Terry, Mickey, Sandy, and Brody Van Wagenen. So he kind of ran a gamut there. Three uh, three interesting years to the Mets, we said a few times. And then he's been with the Pirates for two years since with Joey Cora. So he has a prior relationship with him as well. So there's another OG baseball guy. We got a couple OG baseball guys now in here, which, I mean, it does make me like kind of draw an eye that the Mets like really shot for the moon with asking two probably the sharpest bench coaches in all of baseball if they would interview with them, who definitely were never going to get granted an interview between <laughs> – Andrew Bailey and Ryan Flaherty said no. They're like, all right, let's get let's get the homie over here. But I mean, have she, uh, Chavez and Hefner. I almost mixed their two names up. Said she, uh, Sheffner. Sheffner and Chavez. That could be a sure, that, that could be a shared idea. Sheffner. <laughs> Sheffner. But like, I don't know. I think this team from last year kind of needed some old men, and the Braves just want to ring with a bunch of old men. So. I guess some old men. Yeah, hey, listen, just just buy into what we're trying to do. That's all we ever ask for is trying to buy into what the Mets are at least attempting to do for the future. Hopefully, get Glenn Sherlock's a part of that. And then speaking of the future Mets, I mean, there's still no baseball going on here. We have no real light at the end of the tunnel per se, but there is some stuff that's leaning towards good. I know you listened to the whole Jeff Passan podcast um, and got a lot of insight. I know I listened to the Ken Rosenthal one. Basically, it seems like, at least for me, outside looking in, that baseball is going to happen. I, I think if you're in the, the umbrella of there will be no baseball this year, like you're just crazy. Like that's just not going to happen. There is simply too much money at risk. And that's kind of the overarching like narrative that everybody's putting out there right now is that there might be a delay, which I think is like kind of the worst case scenario right now, realistically. But there will still be baseball played because at the end of the day, The money is there. The money is going to pour in no matter what. Baseball was in a good spot before the lockout. 
Rob Manfred's job is on the line. And if they miss games, Rob Manfred's probably getting canned at some point. Like they're going to play. It's just, it's this same nonsense bullshit that we've been dealing with forever of like just this negotiation back and forth. The owners trying to, you know, be big dicks here. Yeah. I think the concept of missing games is kind of interesting because if you look at baseball, like, and you have to figure out which games are the least valuable, they definitely occur between April 5th and April 20th yeah. games that are in the snow in Colorado and Detroit and Minnesota games are in the rain in New York, Philadelphia, Northern California, like I don't think that anybody in baseball, which probably not the thing anybody out there wants to hear, but I don't think most people in baseball are going to be losing sleep over missed games in April. I think missed games in April probably will still hurt the owners more than the players just because of the long-term impact of missing an, a- an April of baseball will p- could drive some fans away who may never come back. But I don't think April, like that's the hard deadline to get this thing done. I think that they're pretty okay with having a delayed spring training that goes into like 144, 152 game season, you know? Which also like wouldn't be that bad, honestly, for players either. Like 162, we rarely see guys even play that anyway. So if we can like get that 150 in there and get those guys healthier and back and ready to go, like I'm, I'm totally in on that. We're going to dive into this a little bit right now just because something to talk about but for anybody who wants to have like a real like hour-long listen about this stuff the Kevin Rosenthal podcast I'm sure was great I listened to Kevin Goldstein from Fangrass formerly an executive for the Astros and Jeff Passan it was about an hour and a half it was really thorough and in-depth and really taught me a lot about what's going on and the actual relationship that's in like that really has gotten into the fracture between the players and the owners over the last couple of years going back like a CBA or two yeah, no, I, I mean, like, passing whenever he does really dive into things, he does give you good content. I know we like to take shots at him, too, because he always loves to take shots at the Mets, but he is probably one of the smarter reporters out there, one of the smarter analysts. He knows what he's talking about. He also knows how to get clicks. Yeah, he's very smart. He's very easy to listen to. He's, of course, knowledgeable, but he does still work for ESPN, who is, like, one of the most evil entities in sports right now. Not evil in the sense of, like, they're damaging things, but evil in the sense that the television money is what drives a lot of these negotiations at the end of the day. A lot of something that could have an impact on the way this negotiation goes down the line. But basically what has happened in the last week is that the owners came back to the players with a proposal for the first time in six weeks, which is just sucks that they let these six weeks go by the wayside. But these guys are negotiating, so we have to understand that. And it was kind of a mixed bag. They probably softened a little bit, probably even more than I expected, but they gave a hard no to five-year free agency, which was always going to happen because the rich owners have to throw the poor owners a bone and let them keep their good players for an extra year which whatever they softened on super two. And I think that we're moving towards a post arbitration world because I think both sides agree that arbitration is really dumb. It was something that when it was first came into baseball was useful because it allowed teams to go back and forth. But now it has just evolved into something where no one goes back and forth anymore. They just go right to the court and they just damage relationships. It's a pissing contest really at the end of the day. Arbitration right now. And most of these arbitration uh, deals get squandered over less than $100,000, which in terms of you're dealing with a difference of less than a hundred grand, which for these players and these owners, some of the players, not all the players, but the richer players, especially guys like in their third year and every single owner that really shouldn't be much. And these teams are just losing money at the end of the day because you're paying these legal fees, you're paying these court fees. It's a useless process, but we'll see what uh, happens there. And then increase of the minimum player salary to $600,000, which I've heard is like one of the lowest increases of any minimum player salary in any professional sports collective bargaining agreement ever. So, but the fact that they did already come to the table with that going up means I think it'll go up further, which is a big deal for the players. And this is the fun one is that the owners developed a plan where they would give bonus draft picks to teams who promoted their premier prospects early. And that if those prospects actually played well, which I thought was pretty fascinating. I really like that. I think that's a really interesting way to solve the idea of tanking because you can then have a team like the Royals or a team like Orioles, the Orioles, 
who have an incentive now to bring a guy like Adley Rushman up instead of holding him down till he's 35 years old and being able to play him, you're still going to stink because he's not one player doesn't change an entire team like that. Not, not these guys just yet, but I, I, I like that idea. I, I think we have to see it be more in depth, get a little more insight into what this actually is going to look like if this happens. But I think it's a cool way to try and incentivize not holding your prospects down for control and stuff. I like it just because of the fact that we're seeing some creativity in this negotiation, which is something that's kind of been barren in labor negotiations of the past because it's a labor negotiation. There's nothing more boring and less creative than an intense labor negotiation. But I do think that there's a major blind spot in that specific proposal because we're giving the teams the benefit of bringing these guys up with performance uh, indicators rather than the player. Like if you do that and like Adley Rushman comes up and he finishes it and he wins the rookie of the year, the Orioles get a first round compensatory pick. Adley Rushman should also get a raise. Yeah. Oh, apart from just the Orioles getting an extra draft pick, putting another player that they're going to be able to take advantage of in their player pool. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it's also worth noting too, that, who's determining who the top prospects are as well. well. That's the other key. Part of this proposal was that this was only specifically for top 100 prospects who were called up. So are they going to use MLB.com's top 100 prospect? Because that seems a little corrupt. Yeah, Pipeline loves throwing in like 25 and 26-year-old prospects that are, are Major League Baseball players, but by no means is anyone salivating over Seth Beer. I mean, that would, that would be nonsense. No, Seth Beer hasn't made it on the Fangrass top 100 for two years now. <laughs> but like the idea that Major League Baseball is controlling the narrative not so much great, but I think, like you said, the creativity of it at least is something refreshing that we don't really see too often. Definitely, and that's why I feel like the door is open for the players to make a meaningful counter offer with enough time to get another counter offer or two from the owners. And that's why I am hopeful that we're going to at least see spring training by like the second ish week of March. I think probably by the last week of February, we're in a meaningful spot where this could be about to be done. And again, like I know we like love baseball, 162 games. Like that's it's great. It's a marathon, but like even pushing back like two weeks and maybe having an 140 or 150 game season is really not the end of the world. Like, Oh no. Like you said, we're missing those April games in Colorado and in San Francisco on the Bay where it's freezing cold and going to Toronto. Like, I mean, it's just Toronto's a dome. Toronto's a dome. I know, but still just like the idea of like having to travel Cleveland. How about Cleveland? There we go. That's a good one. Traveling to all these cold areas in the spring just makes no sense. Especially when like the first week of April is basically still the winter. Like I'm, I'm okay with these guys spending more time in sunny Florida and Arizona in April as opposed to like starting the season April 1st, 100%. Definitely. And the owners are very aware of how much money they're losing for every single game. So they're going to still push for double headers. They're going to knock off a couple of off days, which is a little bit troubling in a year where we saw the most soft tissue injuries in history of baseball, especially hamstrings. But I do think now it is still very important, again, for the players to come back with something that's realistic because I'm yeah. not – I'm not going to John Boyd up and say the players are going to be dumb, but we had like a couple of years worth of negotiations where both parties were just not even making eye contact with the other one. You know, like this is still a negotiation. You run into trouble here when you ask for too much. Like I don't want to be anti-player, but you're not going to get a hundred percent of what you ask for. Yeah. You have to pick and choose the things that are the most meaningful and have enough stuff still in your chest to go back to the next CBA in five more years. And we do this again. That's not a bigger catastrophe. And again, these are billionaires we're dealing with. Like these guys are winners. 
And it is a collective bargaining agreement. The word bargain is literally in what we're doing right now. So I want the players to get a lot, if not everything that they're asking for, because like they should, they deserve to get paid more. They deserve to not have to be held in the minders because of control. There's a lot of stupid things that are anti-player that need to be fixed. But in the same regards, you can't be going overboard. And I don't think that the players are, like you said, they've been a little like stubborn in the past, but it's because there was not really an urgency to have to be because there was no reason to have to make concessions yet. But now with the season on the line, I think it's safe to say that the players are going to go down a little bit, but still trying to get everything that they want. And like the idea that the MLBPA is the problem with this is just nonsense because like the owners locked out. If the players wanted to do their version of a lockout, that's called a strike. They would strike. That's what happened in the past. This is the owners choosing to lock the players out. The owners are the only reason why there is technically absolutely no baseball right now. Absolutely. And the players have to be thinking about this negotiation in terms of the next negotiation and the one after that. Because the last one, they tried to get everything they wanted. They flew too close to the sun. And that kind of gave the overs more opp- owners different opportunities to take advantage of them in other places. So the players have to basically be able to pick and choose the things they want now and then be able to establish things they want in the future and be able to kind of chip away this and chip away this, chip away this. Kind of like if you're a football team in Division Two playing as a football team in Division One, They have more resources than you. They have more money than you. They're bigger than you. They're stronger than you. And they're smarter than you. So you basically have to find your little areas that you have to be better than them. And you can't go for your 70-yard plays. You have to pick and sh- pick, pick your shots for your trick plays. You have to get a couple yards at a time, keep the, keep the possession, run the ball, keep the clock moving, and eventually put them in a position where they're going to have to be the ones who make the call. Because the way this timeline is working out, that the players got this proposal from the owners late last week, it's usually probably going to take about two weeks to get a proposal back. That puts us in the last week of January. Two more weeks after that, the middle of the first and second weeks of February, now the players have the shot to land a death blow around February between like the 20th and the 25th at a time where you can finally get a deal done and actually get spring training games started on time. And spring training is a big bargaining chip for the players as well because they don't get paid during spring training. So these players are already going to have an entire offseason and two of the last three years now basically training completely on their own. So they're probably a little bit more equipped to deal with that. And it's going to take money out of the owner's pockets to lose these spring training games. Not a substantial amount of money, but still some money. And it kind of puts the teams in a worse spot because they're less aware of where their players are at rehabilitation wise. And they're less prepared to handle anything that happens to their players because of how abbreviated the next window of player transactions will be. So that those first weeks of spring training are where the players are going to have an opportunity to use one of their strengths. And it's imperative that they do if they want to try and at least get some victories here. Yeah. As much money as, you know, they would be losing by, you know, having a season be delayed or missing games and stuff like that. The owners, that's where it hits them the hardest is when games don't get played. And that's what Ken Rosenthal, I think, even passed. And we're talking about a lot was that games not being played is not only bad for the owners, but it's bad for Rob Manfred, who was brought in literally me and you were talking about it before bud selig hand chose him hand picked him because he was like you are good at litigation you are a good lawyer you are a good attorney you're gonna win us these battles and these arguments and these you know cbas and right now he is not looking good and it's not just from like the fans around baseball like it feels like everyone you talk to legal people you talk to everyone they're like he's he's kind of kind of screwing this up a little bit here he's not doing a great job and if the owners see that money come out of their pockets Rob Manfred's going to be the first to go. So maybe if you're anti-Rob Manfred, you're hoping for some missed games because from what Ken Rosenthal's podcast said, at least, um, it seemed like if there is going to be missed games, Rob Manfred's job is going to be very much on the line. 
I think it's very meaningful that we are going through this negotiation in this age of like hyper information, especially in terms of baseball. Like Mark and I are very active on baseball Twitter and there's tons and tons of people, very rich universe of baseball Twitter and people who are, I would say generally like pretty leftist, very pro labor, very pro union, very pro worker, very anti wealth, very anti owner. And this is kind of a, like a large switch from the actual meat of baseball's fan base, which are old white men are generally going to be like pro owner and not and not necessarily anti-labor but they're the people who are going to be like these guys make millions of dollars to play a game i play it for free you know what i mean like we have to kind of leave that public perception in the past and be on the side of the player here and let this vocal i don't know whether it's minority or a majority at this point because it's hard to determine how how much of a actual unit the people are on twitter as opposed to who actually watches baseball in the grand scheme of things but just keep banging the drum because eventually we can live in a world where the players can win more than they lose. And that a big part of that is how much the public perception is going to play into how these owners are viewed. Because we, the owners have so much power. We saw one Jerry Reinsdorf's news outlets the other day put out a headline that said, owners offer players chance to return the work players balk or, or MLBPA box. Yeah. That's it's, disgusting. It's, like, it's so ridiculous. It's the same thing with the letter that Manfred wrote where it was like, yeah. this, we have to lock the players out because baseballs can cease to, will cease to exist if we continue like this. It's like, spare me. Like, I'm not, I'm not stupid. None of us are dumb. I, I think baseball fans are, for the most part, pretty like well-educated and pretty well-in-tuned with what's going on in the game. And to just be like treated like we're stupid is so frustrating. Definitely. Tuesday was Kurt Flood's birthday, the father of modern free agency. And at that time, the owners said that free agency would kill the game of baseball, would cease to exist. And baseball is as successful and profitable as it ever has been. And free agency, I think, is a massive, massive part of that. Yeah. And I, there were some other things that came out of this uh, meeting, I guess, too, right? Well, DH is going to happen. That's, DH, that's DH is most likely going to happen. And we're moving towards expanded playoffs, I'd say, almost definitely. Yeah. I think the owners said 14 and the players said 12, I believe, were the numbers that they came to. Definitely. But that's another negotiation mechanism by the owners, because the biggest chip the players do have to give them is expanded playoffs, agreeing to that, because that is going to be like a billion dollars in the owners' pockets. With yeah, ma- and, these and major the, deals on ESPN. And the players will make more, too, by having playoff games, too, because you get the playoff bonuses as well. Definitely. And it will probably help the competitive balance in the league because if more teams have the ability to make the playoffs, more teams have the ability to say that's free agents. So there's a better chance of if that's something that is valuable to a free agent, there's a better chance that they'll go to a wider array of teams, similar to how an expanded college football playoff will help spread recruiting out in college football. Yeah. It's just a way to increase competition. But I don't love the expanded playoffs, but I think it's a necessary evil for the players to get what they want. There's a needle to be thread with this because there's the NBA where you have the eight seed that is under 500 every single year and they stink and they have no chance of doing anything. Once every 10 years, they beat the one seed in the first round. We don't want that scenario because baseball's had such great parity recently and that like, you know, teams are just kind of coming out of nowhere. Teams are able to build up and stuff like that. We don't want to see, you know, the Dodgers playing the fourth place Philadelphia Phillies in round one. That's nonsense. We don't want that. But get the Dodgers playing, you know, a second place team from every division. Like I think expanding it that way, the first and second place from every division, at least would be a really fun way to make baseball more entertaining. And remember with the, the lot or not lockout season with the COVID season, that like wild card weekend or that wild card week was electric. It was awesome. That was nonstop baseball all day on our TV. And I loved it. It was tons of fun, but this one was a little, this proposal was a little bit different than what we saw that year. Cause in this, there's say that the owners proposed, there were seven teams from each league making it that year. I believe it was six. Yeah. The number one seed in each league gets a buy, which is similar to the NFL, which is important because that creates a system where the teams that are well in first place will actually continue to try. 
Because I remember at the end of that year, the Yankees and the Dodgers specifically just took their feet off the gas because they were winning the division by eight games with like 14 left. And they were like, we don't have to try anymore. And I'd hate to lose like a month of competitive baseball, especially as an avid fantasy baseball player for good teams that have nothing to play for. But we're going to have three game series again in the owner's proposal where two, three, and four in that order are going to get to choose which of five, six, and seven they want to play against in a three-game series, all of which will be in the home park of the, the higher-seeded team, which I think is okay, but I would love to see something like to do in Asia where the higher-seeded team gets a game in hand, especially for the division winners. Like At least those teams who don't get the bye but win their divisions, the two and three seeds, get a game in hand and get the easier opponent and get the home games, while the four and five seeds traditionally just play a three-game series, maybe even oscillating between the parks, if travel can facilitate that. Yeah, I, I know it's like a... Uh, not a popular take amongst the younger crowd of baseball fans right now, but like there should be some value to winning the division. I think that's super important to be your best team in the division. And it shouldn't just be like a a raw, like one through seven best records thing. Cause as we know, you know, you could just be in a division where it's an absolute slog fest and you can get screwed because every team in that division is good. So it's like, but even with that, you're playing the teams in your division the most. So I think, and that's how you build rivalries. That's how you keep this game the way it has been for so long. That's like baseball is a very historical sport. It's been around for a very long time. America's pastime. These divisions have moved around a lot, but baseball has made a great emphasis on keeping some of these teams together, namely the Mets and Phillies, the Dodgers and the Giants. The, uh, the Reds, the Red Sox, Yankees and the Red Sox, the Cubs, the Cubs and the Cardinals. Like these are things that are the pillars of the history of baseball. And it would be just horrible if we created this like evened out schedule where these teams only play each other six times a year rather than the 18 they're playing each other now. Because I like there's there's a different energy in the air when you go to a Mets Braves game, when you go to the Mets Phillies game, when you go to the Yankees Red Sox game, Cubs Cardinals game, like you want to feel that energy. That's a big part of what this is. And that's kind of how I think that you'll be able to keep the fans that you already have while still being able to grow the game. Yeah, I think a lot of the stuff that we're hearing is better. I still don't know if it's good yet. I'm not going willing to say that, but we are moving forward, it feels like, which is something you said earlier we hadn't done for six weeks. And that's at least okay. Definitely. At the end of the day, with this proposal, the owners bent, I'd say, about 10% and added a like a air of creativity, which that yeah. is a massive improvement to what I thought was actually going to happen. And it's now up to the players to use the words of somebody else not to be dumb with their next proposal here. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, no, that's not our words by any means. <laughs> it's, it's not saying that. No, no, we will not say that. And I think that's pretty much it for the lockout. We could talk about the nuances for forever, but you guys can listen to people who actually know the ins and outs of the logistics and laws and all the stipulations more. Let's talk about something. Yeah, money. Let's talk about something a little more interesting here that happened in the past week, which is international signings. Um, For those of you who aren't familiar, of course, you have the MLB draft, which is the American players, uh, not necessarily American nationality, but from high schools and colleges in America uh, that get drafted into this, as well as Puerto Rico um, can be drafted that's how we get new talent in and then there's the international signing which is a different period it's not a draft you're basically throwing money at these 15 or not 15 16 17 18 year olds from the dominican venezuela all the latin american countries outside of the united states essentially um and you're you're bidding for the guys that you want to bring into your organization something that happens every single year you see the trades for international pool money this stuff's super valuable the mets have some guys that they have done really well with out of the international you know pools that they've gotten before Francisco Alvarez, to name one, who's one of the guys that they spent the most money on. And they did grab a couple big guys. They grabbed, I think, 21 total players, 20 of which were from Venezuela and Dominican Republic, which are just baseball powerhouses. Love to hear that. And they got two big guys that we're going to talk about in depth just because, one, they are the best guys that they got, it seemed like right now on paper. And two, they're kind of the only dudes that there's really a lot of useful information or a lot of useful video out on. And those guys are going to be Simone Juan and Willie Fanya. So, 
I feel like let's start off with Simone Juan, right? I mean, this guy is is the dude of the international class for the Mets. He's a possible five-tool player, and he looks really good, at least in, from my view. Definitely. Juan is the type of foundation like he has the type of foundation as a player who could be like a top 50 prospect sooner rather than later like if he has two good years in the minor leagues people are going to talk about Simon Juan like people you've heard talk about if you're in the prospect world like George Valera, Hedbert Perez uh, who are some other international prospects who've gained some steam in the last few years uh I mean like the last few oh, years like Noel V Marco Luciano yeah. like if you have two really good years and you've gotten around the level of money that Simon Juan got which is 1.9 million dollars usually that two million dollars three million dollars where the elite guys are Less than that, you can still be good. But I think Noelvi's bonus was actually just about 1.9. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of guys who don't get paid a lot. We went over this the other day. Like the money, you typically follow the money for the guys who are the hot commodities right now because that's just how it works. Everybody, It's a bidding war at the end of the day. But just because he's getting under that 2 million doesn't mean there's not a shot. Because when you look at this dude, I saw videos from him from 2019 and 2021. And I was just comparing and contrasting a little bit. And just physically, I think he's what, 16, right? He's still 16 or 17? 17. Yeah, he's, he's on the lower end side uh, for age. But just the way he's filled into his body in just those two years, that alone is super exciting. And then when you watch this guy swing, really, really quick bat, great through the zone, uses his lower half. Like all the things that you look for in your hitter pro, like as a prototypical hitter, he seems to mark those off as a 16-year-old. Of course, there's a ton of development that still needs to go into it. But when you're paying a guy $1.9 million, clearly you're thinking the same things as us, is that, oh, this guy could be something. Definitely an MLB pipeline compared his uh, prospect profile to George Springer and Byron Buxton, which are two good places to start. Those are pretty good players. I take that. And the big thing about a guy like Juan, who Mark mentioned, developed a lot physically in the last few years. And a lot of these deals happen under the table years in advance. And then it comes down to the players and their families and how much money you give them secretly as to how likely you are to keep them, especially if you find a guy as a 14-year-old who you see a lot of built on that build built build this on that profile and you could give him money as for what you, know, you can guarantee him 1.9 million when really maybe he had developed into a two or three or three and a half million dollar player that's how you find your value there i'm not saying that happened here but i'm saying that when you see someone grow a lot which a lot of 15 16 year olds grow a lot in a year or two that's something that could be happening here so even though juan has the 12th highest bonus in the pool and was ranked between 10 and 15 basically everybody's list between fangrass baseball america and mlb pipeline he's someone who you could really be excited about and someone you think could be a major piece of this organization a few years like someone like alex ramirez who i've talked about a lot in the show he signed for two mil exactly a few years ago and a couple years before that francisco alvarez signed for 2.7 and at like those are pretty similar levels of money being given out so juan is a guy who i think every mesh fan should be very aware of moving forward yeah i'm really excited about him the more i've been watching his swing the more i've been watching him hit i go as a 16 year old 17 year old again i'm I'm don't really remember how old he is off the top of my head. And it's not really that important to me, honestly. All this stuff looks really good. And I'm excited to see what the Mets can do, especially because I'm going to bring up your guy here, the Royals do. What's his name? Schoenfeld? Uh, Dan, Dan Schoenfeld. Yeah, Dan Schoenfeld. Whatever they were doing in Kansas City, being able to teach guys to hit 40 home runs a year. This kid built like that. You're telling me Byron Buxton Springer comps, t- teach him how to hit for some power. It's really exciting stuff. And you look at some of the international prospects that the Dodgers pulled in under Ben Zausmer and the way they were able to extract power out of them. I think about Andy Pagas, who they pulled out of Cuba, who wasn't really that heralded as an international prospect. Yeah, he only got a $300,000 bonus, which was one of the lowest in his classes in 2018 after defecting from Cuba. And he became an absolute monster this past year in the Dodger organization. He's one of the premier power hitters in all the lower minors. So 
you can do a lot with these guys when you are um, when you're developing them the right way. And as you'll hear from Matt Eddie, the Mets are doing a lot more in their system now since they brought in Zausmer and since Steve Cohen's overhauled the analytics department, especially at the minor league level, to increase power and exit velocity. And if you're doing that with these incredible balls of clay like Juan and the guy we're going to talk about, Willie Fanias, there's a lot of potential there. Yeah, uh, they they look really good. And, and then let's talk about the other guy here, Willie Fanias, who, by the way, fantastic name. I don't know why. It's just it's fun to say Willie Fanias, a little Latin flair on it. Anytime you throw an Enya in there, I'm I'm interested. And uh, Willie Fanias, a little bit older, he turns 18 uh, next Sunday. Which, whenever you're listening to it, I guess that's kind of going to screw you up a little bit. But like the 20th or something like that's going to be his birthday. Um, and he signed for 1.5 million as a little bit of an older guy. So watching him hit, he's a switch hitter. He's another one of these guys that's pretty big. Uh, he's a little bit older, so he's going to fill into his body again a little bit better than some of these younger guys. But there's a clip that's been going around Twitter of him just kind of like hitting a home run. Yeah, in a uh, like scrimmage, it looks like. Just kind of on a random field, and he pimps it, and he crushes it, and he he definitely has got some bat speed, which is super interesting, especially because switch hitter too, and he plays the outfield, which would be really nice. Definitely. He does just based on the look a little more slight. Then Simo Juan, if you're going to compare his body type to some top prospects of the Myers right now, he looks more like a Veen, a Zach Veen or a Bobby Hassel, rather than like the monsters like, you know, like again, like we talked about Noel V or Marco Luciano, who have like the built, built you look at a guy's back and you'd be like, oh, that's a, that's a guy. Or you'd yes. be like, all right, that, that's a guy, you know? And that's the difference there. Fanius also has some wheels. I saw another like uh, scrimmage video of him legging out a triple after he kind of pimped it a little bit and then he got the hustle going around first base and he still found his way into third. Uh, into third. But $1.5 million is pretty substantial. That's both of these guys got more money than the Mets gave any player last year and more money than they give any have given any, any player in the last four years besides for Alex Ramirez and Francisco Alvarez. So this is meaningful class for the Mets. They seem to have liked it a lot, and they seem to have staked their claim on two power-hitting outfielders. And this is a thing that a lot of the really good organizations in baseball the last few years have been really emphasizing is international signings because not that they're cheap. You have to spend the money up front. But the idea is that you're able to get these guys at such a young age that you can really get them to buy into what you're doing and you can really mold them and sculpt them into the player that you want them to be. And you've seen it with the Rays. You've seen it with the Dodgers, like you mentioned. These guys, all these organizations have been building these international prospects up. And then you find Wander Francos. And then you find the Andy Pagas guys, where it's just like these are dudes who are relatively like you know unknown at the time, but they become these beast players. And even past that, you saw the Yankees sell off a bunch of international prospects that they signed over the last five years. The deadline and got a lot of meaningful major league players, including Joey Gallo, who's everyone hates, but he's still pretty good. Clay <laughs> Holmes, who's become one of the best relievers in baseball all of a sudden. Like you get you get enough of a prospect pool, enough prospect depth within your system, and it gives you a lot of flexibility to do basically anything you want. And that's how the competitive teams remain competitive. Yep. And that's something that we are going to talk about a little bit more here as we move into our interview, our talking with Matt Eddy of Baseball America. So sit back, listen. Next 20 minutes, we're going to be talking with Matt Eddy. All right, so now I'm super excited to bring you guys a new guest on the uh, podcast here. We've got from Baseball America... Matt Eddy, big prospect guy. They just dropped their top 100 rankings. We got some Mets players to talk about. We got some Mets questions to ask him. This is the dude. We talk about prospects all the time, but if you really want to get a better insight, Matt's going to be your guy here. So, Matt, first, thanks for coming on the podcast. Appreciate one of our first non-player guests. So uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on. And I know James has been telling me that you've been listening as well. So that's also really cool to hear. Yeah, um, you guys strike a good balance between humor and information. I, I think it's a good listen. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, and I guess let's just get it started, right? Top 100 just dropped uh, today on Wednesday, the day that we're recording. 
And the Mets got some players in there. So let's just start firing off and start asking questions about the guy. And I feel like the first one that all Mets fans want to really hear about is going to be Francisco Alvarez, who comes in at number 13 and the number four ranked catcher. Yeah, Alvarez, uh, from the moment the Mets signed him, they've kind of designated him as a special talent. And that has truly borne out. Um, the first inkling we had that he was going to be a potential, you know, all-star caliber catcher was, you know, his pro debut was outstanding. But at the alternate site is where he really separated himself, I thought, from the pack. You know, scouts were coming back unanimously. This is the top guy. And we're seeing that as he uh, moves well into the um, – into the 11 to 20 range in our top 100 prospects in a, in a group of catchers that is very talented and very deep. So he's, he is a, um, a standout number one prospect for the organization. I know that you yourself in the last few months have talked about that we're entering this kind of golden age of catchers between like uh, Alvarez, Adley Rushman, Gabriel Moreno, Caber Ruiz, and also some guys who rank behind him like Diego Cartaya. I know you're pretty high in Shane Langliez, if I remember from an old article correctly. What, exactly is separating Alvarez from guys like Moreno and Kiebert, who I think are probably a little bit closer than him to the major leagues, but have different, probably a different array of tools. Yeah, those guys, for that reason, because of the proximity, they rank a little higher, uh, Ruiz and Moreno. Um, with Alvarez, the separator is just um, incredible bat to ball, um, the fearlessness, power to all fields. Uh, there's a lot of confidence that he's going to hit and stay at catcher. You know, he's not a, in all probability, not a gold glove catcher, but a strong, strong potential to catch in the major leagues and hit toward the middle of the order. Yeah, as Mets fans too, we're, we're kind of used to having a more offensive first catcher. I think we'd be all right if Alvarez is really more on the offensive side probably than defensively. But it seems like even then, like overall well-rounded, I mean, he like we said, he came in at number 13, as high as like top 10 for some people maybe. Like he's clearly, it seems like the gem in this Mets organization. Oh yeah, he really is. Uh, scouts... You get, I mean, there's a wide range of outcomes because he is a young catcher, but, you know, the scouts who like him are very, very effusive in their praise, like, you know, potential franchise level player, if it all clicks. Amazing. And then next Mets prospect you have ranked in the top 100 is Brett Beatty, someone who Mark and I are personally very high on, someone we talked to only a few months ago on this podcast. And he's also in a glut of third basemen that are pretty similar with a few guys being close in close proximity to the major leagues with massive tools and Josh Young and Nolan Gorman. But you see he is behind Jordan Walker. And you guys seem to be a little bit higher on Walker than most other prospect lists, which is makes sense because Baseball America is a little more cunning than some other of the websites out there. But where where is Beatty separated from Jordan Walker for you guys? Um, with with Walker, we're looking at incredible bat speed and impact, um, and just the fact that he was able to to get to high A in his his pro debut is very impressive. You know, there's a little bit of expectation built into there. Uh, our expectations are probably a little lower for Walker, so so relative to that, he outperformed those, and 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 perhaps that fed into it a little bit. Um, you know, Beatty's also a fine prospect somebody you know a good hitter to all fields with power somebody who i think is going to unlock power as his approach matures and he just you know gets more comfortable in the pro setting do you guys have like anything in particular with brett Beatty that you think separates him from maybe that next set of third base prospects because i know like miguel vargas is relatively close to him as well but of course when you start talking about these guys in the top 40 that's when you're really starting to get to like you know again that cream of the crop for the prospects it feels like right now yeah those two are very close i think you could, I think you you would get different opinions if you asked different people. I think the um, the power projection, the left-handed bat on Beatty might be a little better, um, but you know, but Vargas is fine too, and I, I think you could 
defend either ranking. Last year, Beatty kind of moved around the diamond a little bit more than I think most Mets fans expected, especially when he was drafted so highly a few years ago, namely playing corner outfield. And we asked him about that when we talked to him, and he said it was some, he was open basically trying any position, which is a little bit lofty expectations for a guy with stature of Brett Beatty. He's not going to try any position. But do you see him as someone who could potentially stick in an outfield spot as the Mets have this kind of glut of corner infield players? Um, yes, especially early in his career, uh, you know, long-term third base, I would expect to be his his um, uh, most dominant position. It, one thing the Mets continue to bring up is that he's faster than he looks, he's more athletic than his reputation, and they, and he's an incredibly hard worker. So I think there is a strong possibility that he could play left field, you know, for the first season or two of his career. Yeah, I think yeah. I remember you and I actually discussing that a few months ago when we were talking on Twitter and Mark and I, when we watched him at the fall league, we were like, he's much faster than I've seen any scout ever give, give him credit for. Like you see the way he moved down the lines, a former uh, basketball, high school basketball player and high school quarterback. So I think it is a, uh, it is bad. I'm happy to hear that his athleticism has been a bit underrated through the system. Yeah. And just a professional approach at the plate, outstanding um, batting practice at the futures game. I know he and Alvarez, that was the talk of, of our team when they came back from the futures game. It was uh, those two put on the two of the best batting practices there. Yeah. And those guys hit the ball differently. And then I guess the last guy to really talk about here with the Mets inside the top 100 is Ronnie Mauricio, who I feel like a lot of Mets fans are kind of a little bit all over the place with whether or not, you know, he's going to be a part of this team in the future. That's still yet to be seen, but it does feel like there is a lot of value behind this guy. Guys have him coming in at number 92, which I think is a pretty fair ranking, but I also know there's probably people who expected to see him a little bit higher. So maybe you could get a little insight as to why, he's in that 90-ish ranking. Yeah, divisive. That would be the one word I would use, <laughs> Mauricio. Uh, explosive hands and bat speed and huge power. Um, not as much conviction that he'll actually hit and get on base enough to, to be a, a major factor in the major leagues. Like that, That's probably the, his case in a nutshell. But, but there is um, scouts outside the organization do like him. You know, you can find people who will go to bat for him. And I think in, in the context of, of this system, he is clearly a top prospect and somebody who belongs in that last quartile of the top 100. Do you see a large difference between Mauricio and Mark Vientos? I know Vientos was not in the top 100, and his his report will come out more in the issue that's due next week. But where do you see the gap between those two guys as prospects, as different as they are both in proximity and player type? Yeah, um, you know, Viento, uh, Mauricio offers a bit, of more position value, quite a bit more position value and athletic ability. He is one of the better athletes in the Mets system. Uh, those don't necessarily apply to Vientos, but Vientos is more accomplished as a hitter. You know, he, he went essentially from low A to double A, even, you know, had a few weeks in triple A. Uh, it does a lot of things that um, teams are looking for these days. It's the ball hard, it's the ball in the air, it, it's, it hits at all fields. So I think there's um, a lot of upside, some sneaky upside with him too. For you guys at Baseball America, I know this is like a big question on Mets as well because we have Lindor locked down for the next 10 years. Do you guys see Mauricio as being a shortstop when he gets to the major league level or is he going to be someone who maybe moves around? I think he could play it in the right situation. Uh, scouts have been generally optimistic about his fielding and throwing. Um, in the context of the Mets, third base or right field would probably be the most natural fits. I, I guess you could work him at uh, second base to try to get like a to get his bat in the lineup like a more of a taller second baseman but much yeah. taller dj lemayhu height yeah second he's, baseman. he's so big when we met him we were like shocked like because you you know you see all this stuff online and you can't really put it into words until you actually see the guy and not that me and james are big in stature by any means Opposite. but to stand next to him we're like 
he's such a young kid and he's built like this already. It feels like that he still has so much more growing into his body that he could do that. Like, like you said, maybe shortstop with the Mets isn't the spot, but like third base or right field put on some weight as well and get some of that extra power. Like he kind of is a guy that I get really excited about. Although I know that there are some still concerns with his game for sure. Yeah. And any prospect we're talking about who, who went through Brooklyn has a little bit, you have to kind of filter the numbers through the, the Brooklyn park effects, you know, and, and Mauricio did hit better on the road when he was at that level. And, you know, he, he played pretty well at double A for the week or so that he was there. We actually asked him about that because we've been to a few Cyclones games. I've been going to Cyclones games since I was since basically since they started the team in 2001. And the wind that comes off that beach in Coney Island is so extremely strong. It's like it's almost impossible for guys to get the ball out. And that's why what Beatty did there and mm-hmm. Alvarez, too, to a lesser degree, was so impressive the fact they were able to put a couple of different home runs on the board at a stadium where even not even just a stadium but the pitching in that league i know traditionally the new york penn league was always much more of a pitching dominant league but offense just in general was very down at that park i know it's it's fun to look back at um past left-handed hitters you know you can go back brandon nemo michael conforto ike davis remember him yeah no the mets of like it, it's so probably like from the outside looking in, hard to understand, but until you actually like really take a look at it, it's like, okay, like don't overreact to the numbers that you see in Brooklyn. And it feels like sometimes fans maybe get a little overexcited about that. It's kind of like the numbers we see at City Field, the major league level, with the wind coming off the LaGuardia Jet streams. Mets just don't want offense. No. <laughs> I heard, you know, Sarah's mentioned something that the um, the park tends to suppress exit velocity. I hadn't, I hadn't yeah. heard that before, but that's fascinating. He's been beating that drum for like about a year and a half now. Ben Zausmer, the new Mets assistant general manager and director of um, analytics, actually mentioned that one of his first orders of business now this coming year was to actually be able to quantify how City Field suppresses exit velocity and how they could find ways to circumvent it, which is fascinating, especially because it's not even at the bottom of park factors, looking at either like fan graphs or savant. It's always like towards the bottom, like the bottom third, but it's never like really all the way low. They need like the... Um opposite humidor whatever that is yeah. <laughs> yeah, we gotta start dehumidifying those baseballs <laughs> green defenses even more in 318 yeah. foot fence <laughs> so we talked a lot about the guys in the top 100 um of course you guys have the top 10 mets prospects up as well we talked a little bit about vientos um you know a lot of people around the mets know about matt allen but of course he didn't get the pitch last year because of tommy john who's a guy maybe in the top 10 or maybe just even in the mets organization that you think could fall into the top 100 next year a little bit of like an under the radar guy right now. Ooh, that's a high bar. You know, Matt Allen is the obvious answer. He does have yeah. tremendous upside when healthy. Um, ooh. <laughs> you know, if, if if absolutely everything broke right, JT Ginn or Alex Ramirez, you know, I would I would call those low probability outcomes, but not zero. Um, you know, well, actually, actually, the most likely player to rank would be whoever they draft eleventh and fourteenth overall. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> that's a pretty good. Answer. So honestly, I kind of wanted to ask you a draft question. I didn't even think we'd get here, but I put it on the sheet anyway. So last year, there was like, there was a lot of talk around the much maligned Kamar Rocker pick, and we're not going to get into the processes that either made him a Met or eventually did not make him a Met. But seeing the way that draft board lined up last year and with Rocker falling and the concerns about his decreasing velocity over the back half of Vanderbilt's season, would you have opted or do you think that it could have more been more beneficial to the Mets, notwithstanding rocker not signing to have gone for one of the more high upside position players like house or watson just based on the way their system is like arranged right now yeah i really like brady house heading into that draft you know um he's, he's kind of a unicorn bigger guy who could 
who has at least a shot to stick a shortstop with pretty elite power uh, profile. You know, but at the same time, I do understand the Mets' perspective. They are so thin on pitching, especially upper-level pitching. So if, if you have somebody who you view as a high probability number three starter, that's very appealing, especially if you're willing to meet the rumored price tag. Um, so, you know, I I could see it both ways. I mean, I, I would have, in that position, I, I would have found House to be very appealing too. Uh, building off that, just getting now back into the Mets system, you mentioned that pitching is weak. Would you consider the Mets pitching depth to be the weakest position group in the minor leagues, or is there even somewhere else they are weaker because the system truly lacks depth from top to bottom? Yeah, that's an issue that they're, they're they need to address. But yeah, proximity pitching is is clearly the weakness for me. You know, they if you look at arms who could come up this year, it's you know Jose Buto, Adam Aller would be two good candidates. You know, JT Ginn if absolutely everything goes right. Uh, and, that, and that's about it. And that's that's a problem in terms of getting enough quality innings to be a competitive team. And I feel like, to be honest, like not even just from the pitching side, but it feels like just kind of in general right now, the Mets kind of lack that upper minor talent. Like Beatty and, Al- or, or Beatty and Alvarez are knocking on the door, but in, rea- in reality, we don't really need to have them up in 2022. But when we look at like even guys in the outfield, like it's Khalil Lee who would be the next guy up. Or if you're even talking about infield, it's pretty hard to find who that next guy is going to be. Um, talking about the Mets' upper talent at like the AAA level, like, is there anybody that's around there that you think is, you know, someone that could maybe get to the major level that we're not talking about? Yeah, it's it's Khalil Lee, it's uh, Nick Plummer, who they signed yeah. as a minor league free agent, you know, to a one-year major league deal. Um, it's Jose Buto, it's you know Carlos Cortez if if everything breaks right. And Adam Aller, the minor league rule five pick. It's actually a player development win. It's, it's a good story. Right. Not not like a high impact guy, but definitely a major leaguer in my opinion. Yeah, and I it seems like I mean he was their pitcher of the year last year in their organization, I believe. So clearly, mm-hmm. like something was clicking. Um, now his ceiling, we don't necessarily know how high that would be, but it seems like he's at least going to be someone that can be serviceable at the absolute worst in the Mets organization. Yeah, and just continue to have this conversation. It makes it a little bit more strange that the Mets did expose. Carlos Cortez and the player they got for Billy McKinney last year, Carlos Rincon, to the Rule Five draft, especially as two of probably the only, two of the best hitters that would have been on the AAA roster, which I do find kind of peculiar, especially when they need upper minors guys to contribute. But we got a good listener question from one of our Twitter followers. His name is Kyle F11. He's involved with us almost daily on Twitter. He's a very loyal follower. But we've talked. The Mets have talked a lot about wanting to become like the Dodgers. And then we see farm systems in baseball. It's basically the Dodgers, the Rays, now the Giants, probably soon to be the Yankees as the teams who are consistently able to pull talent from their upper minors and basically not miss a beat on the major league level. And basically how much time is there between the Mets actually getting to a level like that? And what steps, if any, that you know could are actually going to be taken for any system in baseball to reach a point where they are one of those systems that is just flush with talent all the time, ready to be picked up whenever they need? Yeah, uh, good question. I think 2022 is going to be a, a turning point. If you know, if we look back in five years and it works out, I think we'll, we'll view 2022 as the turning point uh, for a couple of reasons. The uh, hitting program started by uh, Jeremy Barnes and others in the organization uh, could pay dividends if it results in the in the system's goal of increasing exit velocity overall i know the stated goal is they want to get into the top 10 in the minor leagues and there is a pretty good correlation between um, exit velocity and success in the minors i think the dodgers and rays are at the top of that leaderboard so for instance that's that's a worthwhile goal and i think beginning with the hitter camp last year where some of the newer players were 
introduced to the concepts. Uh, I'm talking about guys like JT Schwartz and Kevin Kendall, some of the draft picks, along with some of the other younger players. If those, if those, um, if those, if that instruction sticks, we could begin to see some breakout players lower. And you know, the other thing is just the draft. This draft is huge for the Mets with two top 15 picks, one of the largest bonus pools, you know, and, and then two compensatory picks and a second round pick. It's, it's, it's very important to the future of the franchise. Yeah. And I guess that kind of like leads into the next thing I wanted to ask about, which was, you know, like the Mets are always being linked to trying to make bigger moves. And like you talked about, like getting that number three starter would be pretty big right now. And we're probably going to have to give up some guys. So, I mean, what prospect do you think would most likely be traded from the system? Um, it feels like there's probably an answer that everyone is expecting, but maybe, I don't know, maybe you have someone else that you think has a little more value than I think the elephant in the room. <laughs> um, the most untouchables would be, would be Alvarez and Beatty, perhaps Allen, you know, depending on, on where they're at with his rehab. Um, I, I would say the other, the other players would be fair game uh, in the right deal. You know, I mean, for you is, is the elephant Mauricio. Yeah, yeah, it feels like that's, yeah. like, the name that always gets thrown around. It seems like it makes the most sense. He has probably some of their most value still because he is so young and plays shortstop and has that huge upside, and he just doesn't kind of really fit into this roster per se in the future, even though he's, like, a couple years away. Yeah, and, and there is interest from other teams too, so that does make sense. And then I guess last question here because we want to keep you, you know, not too long. Appreciate you having on. If you had to rank the Mets system as a whole, where would you kind of put it in terms of the rest of Major League Baseball? They are middle of the pack, like in that 16 to 20 range is where they're going to settle um, heading into spring training. And that's a, a reflection of having one elite prospect, you know, with a caveat being that it's a risky position. Um, and then three other young um, hitters who are fairly close to Major League ready. That's that's valuable. This is like a philosophical question when in terms of ranking systems overall. Do you, or, or like if part of Baseball America's philosophy, to give more credence to systems that have more prospects with close proximity with potential, similar to the Mets having, like I said, four guys who you could probably expect to be plus major league players within a few years? Or did you like, do you guys like to see like a depth in the system, maybe a glut of players between like 200 and 300 in the rankings, but that fills out double A AA and triple A rosters in a more positive way? Uh, our org talent ranking is skewed heavily toward, you know, star power and proximity. That's the way we look at it is it's, it's those stars who, who make teams go. And if you have more talent toward the top of the top 100, more talent um, closer to the major leagues, that's going to be reflected in a better uh, ranking in our standing. Awesome. Yeah. So Matt, uh, thank you so much for coming on this episode. Really do appreciate it. We would love to pick your brain more as the season goes on and we get to get a little more in depth of prospects. Once we start to see games being played, hopefully fingers crossed. Um, tell us where everyone can find you Twitter. Tell us a little bit about baseball America here before you go. Yeah. Um, you know, baseball America, we're in our 42nd year. <laughs> I've only been there for half of them. Um, and <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, you know the top 100 prospects just launched. It's a it's, it's something we're proud of. It's a collaboration between me and six other editors, and and you know with industry feedback incorporated too. So it's we feel like it's a pretty good reflection of of how teams are valuing prospects right now. Um, and as for me, you can find me on Twitter. It's probably the best place, Matt Eddie B A. Yeah, and everyone out there, follow Matt. It's very receptive to 
mentions very friendly guy very fun follow talks about other things besides baseball but mostly prospects so <laughs> good person to follow matt thanks again for ha- coming on we really do appreciate it yeah, thanks thank guys you, Yeah, that was a great interview. That was fun to pick uh, Matt Eddy's brain a little bit, just because, like, of course, we are not professionals by any means in doing this, and he's been doing this for 20-some-odd years. So it's it's cool to see a guy that's got the experience, got the knowledge, but also kind of agree with what we think as well. It's nice to hear. Yeah, and Matt is also a fan of the podcast, which is something that's also really cool that somebody as established as him in the industry actually listens to us idiots talk about baseball, like possibly once a week. And I even made the connection with Matt because I've applied to some jobs at Baseball America, and I finally got an interview over the summer. Actually, I think it was like September, August, around then. I remember I biked home from Queens. We did a podcast together, and I was like hustling because I had a yeah. phone call with him. I was moving across the Pulaski Bridge, and um, I wasn't like I wasn't experienced enough to actually get a real scouting job. But he just thought it was kind of funny, and I showed I showed him this podcast. Kind of listened to. It. We've been DMing on Twitter, and he was excited to come on. I really really enjoyed having him on. I think maybe it'll probably be another point where he comes on again. So I hope you guys liked him. Yeah, it seems like he's going to be a recurring guest uh, whenever we have more prospect stuff to talk about in depth. And I feel like we will, as much as we have prospect fever right now, it will get stronger, I'm sure. And we've gotten great listener feedback on our uh, prospect segments. We're going to keep bringing it to you. Yeah, and you guys also give us great feedbacks through the reviews on Apple Podcasts and dropping five-star reviews on Spotify. I'm going to plug it again because it really does help out. So a couple of you guys left us some questions there in the reviews. We're going to go ahead and answer them. And we'll get to start off with the first one because I see it right here. Whose number should the Mets retire next? And I, I mean, we we're gonna have the same answer, right? It's gotta be David Wright. David Wright. I yeah, have a question. It can't be anybody else than him. I'm I'm shocked they haven't done it yet. I'm not, but I'm I am at the same time. Like I'm assuming once the first year that the pandemic is over, uh, I'm assuming that David Wright's number is getting retired. I don't even know who another option would be. John Matlack. Happy I saw birthday. Like, I saw a conversation of should they retire Beltron's number, and I was like, no, no, nah, no. like I, I, Beltron was really good, but you don't retire his number. You can't nah. do that for a guy who took a pitch right down the middle like that but if he came up with the Mets and he had those seasons as like a homegrown Met then yes I would understand it but signing him as a free agent while he was a great free agent acquisition he's just a player that you can reminisce on somewhat positively rather than someone whose number you want to look at every single time you're at the game and remember that moment no one should wear number five ever again as a New York Met that's really what this is all about no but otherwise it's kind of hard to pick out a guy like because we got Keith last year we did Coos and Fonz I mean it would be like Doc right I guess, but at the end of the day, or would Doc have four good seasons? Yeah, or with the Mets? I guess, but that's almost like I don't, I don't, I don't really, I don't think I retire. He, those guys won World Series with the Yankees. I know that's the only thing, but like, I mean, he Keith threw a no hitter with the like, Yankees. As much as we like to say Keith is a Met, he also like he seems to really love the Cardinals a lot. So yeah, like, but he announces the Mets games won a World Series with the Mets. I don't know. He, yeah. but Keith also came to the Mets as a guy who changed the culture kind of instantly when he got let go from the Cardinals he got sent to the Mets because at the time they were called Baseball Siberia because they were such a shit show of an organization yeah. and he was a former MVP and and he was got traded because Whitey Herzog was manager and he was just so outraged that Keith didn't come forward as a guy who got caught with drugs yeah. as an old school guy that they literally sent him to the Mets as a punishment he instantly got had this team on the right track in a way that they could have won multiple championships in the era where he played it didn't happen but he is someone who is very meaningful in Mets history, as it was David Wright. Mets have Gary Carter's number retired? I don't believe so. But he also, he's not even in the Hall of Fame as a Met. I guess, yeah, that's true. It was, that's it was like, a, it's another small, small yeah, period can, of time. You yeah. can be cocked by Gary Carter. You can even go to the Hall of Fame with him. You're going to retire his number. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. But, yeah, David Wright thinks the obvious answer. And you know who the next one after him probably is? Jacob DeGrom. 
I guess, in a couple <laughs> more years here. <laughs> yeah, but I'm saying, like, he's probably the next most likely guy outside of David Wright. Um, and then you or, have the other ones, right? The other Yeah, questions? we have two, two more questions now. This one is from GLG, DCG, DCJ, DG, wait, <laughs> GLG, DCGJ. I, sure. You had to just smack your keyboard for a year. <laughs> so shout out to you guys. I just want to make sure everyone's aware of when their question is being answered because we're going to answer every question that comes in the form of a five-star review as long as this lockout persists. And whenever there's not that much to talk about in the season too because we want five-star reviews. I know you guys want your questions answered. So this is a good way for us to work with each other here. But this question is, with potential lefty long relief arms already on the team, such as Lucchese and Peterson, how much focus should be placed on lefty bullpen arms following the departure of Loop? If the Mets miss out on Chafin, how should they pivot? Shout out from Union Country. Shout out from Union County M side. So Mountain Side. So shout out you, brother. Westfield neighbor. I can't I read right gonna, now, I guess. I know what you're gonna say. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, mean I I don't care that much about having a lefty in the rotation because it's just it's not that meaningful. Like the teams are not teams are gonna platoon every single game, probably for lefties versus righties, but how badly do you want to knock some lefties out of the lineup? But I don't think it's gonna make that much of a deal at the end of the year. It's cool to have one, it just seems to balance you out more, but it's not the end of the day. And Lucchese probably not going to pitch at all this year anyway. And Peterson, we don't really know what we're going to get. I'm very into getting a couple lefty arms out of this uh, free agent class. And one lefty I like much more than Andrew Chafin is my guy, Adam Conley. There it There's is. 97 from the left side. Incredible changeup. He mirrors the fastball and the changeup off each other. Tunnels them really well. They drop in opposite directions. He's a guy I'd love to get. I'm going to talk about him more half of, as a kind of a joke on a, our guy wore these a live show tonight. Or it's a YouTube episode or live show. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But yeah, yeah. I, I want Deekman. He's still available, right? Deekman? Deekman's available. I like also like Deekman more than Chafin. Chafin's a guy that just doesn't really miss as many bats as he gets credit for, like in the media. And he's going to be much more expensive than both of those guys. So I think that I think that Chafin is kind of a deal. Like kind Chafin's like if you're going to Walmart and you're buying something, you could just go to Costco and get more of it for less money. Yeah, that's what Chafin is. So I think that Conley and Deekman are two sneaky arms that could get and two of the best probably free agents that are available to the Mets starting wise are also lefties between Rodon and Kikuchi. So I think the Mets will finish out this offseason by adding in a few lefties. Yeah, and Deekman, he's a Crohn's guy like me. Technically has colitis, but we're good friends. I want Deekman on the Mets. Give me give me more people that we can bring onto this podcast, please. I haven't been able to cash in yet. Crohn's brother. Yeah, the Crohn's brother. And then we got one more question that came from Guy McGuy4. It's a pretty funny name. What a name. Say, hey, dudes, this is the best mess podcast that I listen to. Well, that's great, but maybe just stop listening to the other ones then. <laughs> <laughs> the way that you both break down information makes it super accessible for the fans that are less knowledgeable about what certain stats mean. That being said, James, question for me. I know that you're kind of into pitching. What do you look for as early predictors of success in struggling pitchers or those in the minors? Is it velocity, command, or something more? And I think that it kind of depends specifically on the pitcher. Like you want to see at least a certain level of velocity from guys. Like I look, when I'm looking at pitchers, I look to see that at least they're above league average velocity with the fastball, which is going to be between 93 and 94 miles an hour. You want to see also that it's a fastball that gets like good active spin on it and has ride ride means like it gives it the illusion of rising as it comes through the zone. And that's also guys who don't throw sinkers sinkers, is a whole other animal, which I'm not really equipped to talk about. And especially with the minors, you really want to look at, swing and miss stuff. Fangrass does a good job of putting a uh, swing strike rates and strikeout rates on minor league pitchers. And I look there a lot because in the minor leagues, like your defense is not going to be that good. The parks are always going to be kind of weird. We do hear this talk with Matt Eddie about the park factor at, at a, at a Mamadi's park for the Cyclones house. Very bizarre. So you want to make sure that you're looking at a guy who is missing bats at a high degree in the minor leagues, at least much more than their league average that they're in. And you also want to look for a guy who has 
at least two very legitimate pitches that they're throwing, or at least a third pitch that's possibly accessible as a guy who could reach the major leagues with potential. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. Like stuff is super important, but swinging, swinging misses. It's, yeah. If you're not getting swinging misses against guys that, because let's be honest, if you're an A ball and you're not getting swinging misses, you're not getting swinging misses at major league baseball, unless there's this insane overhaul to what you are as a pitcher, just because you're playing with majority of guys who aren't even going to make the show in a ball. So that's why it's like so important to find these guys that are able to differentiate themselves from the rest of the pack. When you're looking at the lower level minors, because if you're just like everybody else, well, most guys don't make it. You want to be able to differentiate, differentiate yourself to a different level. Definitely. You'd look more with stuff than command the lower minors, especially with younger pitchers, even in the major leagues, because command is something that is much more easily developed with age and stuff. Like while you're in your prime and your arm is at its strongest and you, your body's at its peak level of athleticism, your stuff is going to be basically as good as it's ever been, unless you're like a unicorn, like Charlie Morton or like Jacob DeGrom. Like these are the rare cases though. For the general bulk of these pitchers, the stuff comes early and then you hope that they have this like pitching renaissance where like quote unquote, they learn how to pitch rather than throw. And the command comes with more refined and more repeatable mechanics, working more with major league staffs and smarter people around them. So command is good. Like you don't want to see a guy in the minor leagues who's walking like six batters per nine, but then you have a guy like Anthony ghost who was walking like eight batters per nine in the major leagues. And now a converted outfielder is going to be a lights out reliever for Cleveland this year. So it's all about stuff. Some, some about velocity, but it's kind of hard to read that. You got to read through a lot of scouting reports to get a sense of that. And you just want to see guys missing bats. That's how you evaluate young pitchers. Yep. It is really hard to learn to throw 99 miles an hour. It is almost impossible to teach. It is not as hard to learn how to throw strikes. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's where a lot of, uh, especially the modern pitching evaluation comes from. Yep. And uh, I think it's a perfect way for us to wrap up this episode here. Episode number 71 of the Mets Up podcast done. We had Matt Eddy on of Baseball America, talked prospects. We talked international signings. We talked lockout. We talked about bench coach. We had a lot this episode. So thank you guys for hanging around, listening with us. Make sure you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Metzed Up. We're going to have the video up on there as we have been recently. Uh, follow James on Twitter at Jeter Had No Range. Follow me at Giraffe Neck Mark with a C. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen, subscribe, five-star rating, review, do it all. That's where we're wrapping it up, guys. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. And we'll see you on episode number 72 of the Messed Up Podcast. Peace out. Peace out, guys. See you next time.